WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk here on WBCA Radio. And I'm very privileged to have this gentleman on with us. Uh, If you listen to WBZ and WGBH, I'm certain you are familiar with the name Joe Matthew. And I'm very happy to be able to talk to him and, and discuss his career. And, and Joe, you guys just celebrated at WGBH the 50th anniversary of NPR. Ken, it's great to be here. And thanks for having me. And yeah, I've got a knack for anniversaries. I think it was the 90th anniversary I celebrated at WBZ when I arrived there and it was like a real hoopla much more than they did at GBH we were recording specials and they brought the great loppy air back in to uh, sit down with me and talk about the old days and uh, I know you share a piece of that history Ken I uh, there will always be a soft spot in my heart for these great old stations oh yeah absolutely I was at uh, BZ when they celebrated their 50th in 1971 so you know. And I, 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 I didn't even know that NPR existed back then. So <laughs> where were you in 1971, my boy? That's a great question. I was somewhere in the cosmos, I guess, being formed. <laughs> uh, that, that's just a, just a couple of years before I was, uh, I was born, actually. Uh, by the time I came along and I started in Connecticut Radio, Ken, and I knew that it was something I wanted to do, you know, when I got into, you know, sort of middle school, high school, because I started really young. I started working on the air when I was 14 before I could drive, which is the story for a lot of radio people. Wow. Uh, by then, you know, BZ was the top of the mountain. That was like, the, that had a lot to do with why I ended up coming back just to foreshadow our conversation. I came back from Washington to work there um, and I, I was in a great place there and having a good time and I was very blessed to be uh, to be working at the White House and in satellite radio but you know when LaPierre's job opens up that's uh, that's its own language if you're from up here and so it has a lot to do with timing and you know when you grow up and the things that influence you I guess. But what what got you started I mean when I was little my parents gave me a tape recorder when I was 10 years old yeah. And I was fascinated by working with a microphone and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Is that what got you interested? In, I mean, I wasn't on the air at 14, but I was always and had a love for radio itself. Yeah, I learned to love radio. Um, it, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the most brief answer I can because it's like a real saga and, you know, it's a good cocktail party story. But when I was a kid growing up in, in, the, in the early to mid-80s, like a lot of other kids, we all wanted to be Top Guns. That was the thing back then. It was the Reagan era and being a fighter pilot and joining the military was something that a lot of you know, middle-class kids were sort of uh, brought up to admire at that point. And, and so I thought, gosh, you know, I, I really wanted to get a ride in a fighter jet. And we were blessed in New England to have all these bases around. We go to air shows in the summer and stuff. And I'd fire off letters to these guys and say, you know, I'm going to join the, the Navy and I want to fly jets someday. And, and I think that you should give me a ride. And, you know, why I thought this was possible, I have no idea. And they would actually take the time to write back because, it, you know, it's good PR. And I'd get a note from the public affairs person. They'd say, son, you know, you need to be a, 
a bona fide media representative is the phrase that was frequently used. And I said, well, what the heck is that? And there was, uh, I, I was told, uh, and there was a radio station in my town in this small town in Putnam, Connecticut was, uh, is the town and W-I-N-Y is the radio station. It's still there, it's still owned privately. It's, it was never gobbled up by a conglomerate. And at the time my uncle uh, was, uh, was working there and, and they thought, you know, gosh, maybe this would be something fun. And I, I, they wrote, they gave me basically letterhead to send uh, letters to see if I could get a ride in an airplane and they could do a story on it. And that's literally how I got into radio. And I realized hanging around that radio station, it was, it was actually a lot cooler than hanging around some Air Force base and uh, man, those guys who were sitting in the chair playing records, they were kind of like, they were kind of cool as fighter pilots. They had cool headphones and they had a real neat lifestyle. And I thought, man, this is for me, I'm already here. And so I just kind of just kept showing up every Saturday morning at that radio station. The, the guy who was the morning man is still there now, Gary O in the morning. And he owns the place, as a matter of fact, he went on to buy it. And he was my idol. And I learned so much about radio back then from just watching those guys. And you know what it's like in these, these stations, you know, the coffee's in the air and the donuts are showing up. And there's just a great sense of community and, and live energy. And I was really addicted to that as a kid. And they were dumb enough to put me on the air when I was, you know, it was summers and I was doing weekends when I was 14. And I used to run the board on Red Sox games and I'd play a couple songs to, to finish the hour. And that's how, uh, that's all that stuff started. So it was to get a ride in an airplane. And by the way, I never got one back then. Uh, it took me until I was at XM Satellite Radio as, a, as an adult, and I ended up riding with the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds in an F-16 over the Nevada desert and realized my boyhood dream. So I, you know, I've, I've got no bucket list left, Ken. I, I had something similar to that. I did uh, an interview in an on-air balloon ride. Excellent. <laughs> and, and I recorded it. And, and played it on the air, and the audience loved it, so we played it twice in one night. Oh, I love it. This is a hot air balloon or like a dirigible? This was, this was a hot air balloon. That's cool. The only problem was the audience didn't know that we were tied to a tether because the wind was so strong, <laughs> and we were only 20 feet up in the air. Wow. Oh, that's great. The magic of radio. Had, once again. But, but they never knew it, but they got quite a thrill. <laughs> out of hearing an interview done with a pilot in a hot air balloon. Isn't that great? That's the stuff yeah. that it's almost, those are the kinds of things that just play differently on the radio than they, than they can with a camera. Uh, and, and your ability to imagine, to go to that place in your own head is so much more powerful on an interactive level, listening to that than it is on a passive level, watching that on TV. And what's probably not a great shot anyway, and is not capable of capturing the scale of what you're describing in that balloon. But on the radio, it's wide open. And you brought everyone that great sense of scale and maybe vertigo that they never would have had by watching it on TV. <laughs> we did it at five o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget it. Nice job. Uh, my, my producer drove me to wherever, I don't even remember now where it was, but we did it and we taped it and we put it on the air that night because I promoted it way ahead of time. Hmm. And it was, it, was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I couldn't believe the reaction I got from it. It was, it, was, it was great. Um, but give me your progression now from the small, I mean, I remember 
Connecticut with uh, a, a good friend of mine who went to WTIC, yeah. where Jerry Williams spent some time. That's right. Uh, with uh, w and and he also used to produce for a guy named Arnold Dean, who did a show called The Dean of Sports, <laughs> on on WI, uh, uh, WTIC. WTIC, yeah. Which which carried Red Sox games and still does. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was the big city for me. I, I was in a small uh, sort of mill town next to farm towns in Northeast Connecticut. Uh, again, it was called Putnam. It's, well, it still is. Now that's the antique capital. Of, <laughs> they call it the quiet corner. And it's the antique capital of, uh, of New England. But back then it was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of mills and there was a radio station and that was the only thing like it around Ken. There wasn't even a shopping mall around. That was like the dream factory. That was like Hollywood. So, you know, anything involving, uh, it was like an escape from, you know, <clears throat> from the, from the small town thing. And it, and it really ended up being a ticket to another place for me. So, uh, but TIC, I used to see those bumper stickers and think, oh yeah, you know, someday working in a big city like Hartford, which I never did work in Hartford, but um, the big tick, as we used to call it. <laughs> now, wh where did you go from that little radio station? Did you go right to Washington? Well, no, I bounced around a little like all these stories do. I went to Emerson College and, and oh. followed my new wife from Emerson to, she finished up Emerson College in their, their new budding LA program. So I found myself in California and you just don't go from, you know, rural Connecticut to, uh, to LA in the radio market. So I was really starting from scratch and I, I took the, I'm really glad I did it now too, but I, I decided to take voiceover coaching and it was really different than coming from, you know, an AM radio kind of 1950s thing that I was coming from to really learn how to interpret copy and slow down and like really just, you know, try to learn the things, the fundamentals that would, that I could use for a long time. A guy named George Krul, who was a radio hero post-World War II out in the LA and San Francisco. And the guy was a genius. He's not with us anymore, but he was, he was like working with Orson Welles. He had pictures all over his walls of Count Basie and Fred Astaire. And from another time, Ken, you would have loved this guy. <laughs> and I would just sit in his office and listen to stories. It was, you know, and, and then we would work on copy together. So, um, I, I'm totally veering off here, but after we lived in LA for about six months of doing that, I got a job working on Cape Cod. I came back East and I, I got a, a job working on, went back when Ernie Bach owned radio stations. Ah. There, there was a group out there and I was anchoring mornings on uh, the old WCOD, uh, yep. which is a great old station, 106.1. And suddenly we're living in uh, South Yarmouth and it was, you know, not bad. Like some people have to go to awful places in radio, you know, <laughs> like in the middle of freaking nowhere. Now I'm living on Cape Cod. That's pretty good. And uh, we ended up doing about a year and a half there. And and then the, the call came from Washington and that's what brought me down. It was actually Metro Networks uh, that brought me down there. I was moonlighting. Uh, in Boston, I would do morning drive on Cape Cod. This is a lesson to the, if there are any young people left trying to get into radio, the crazy stuff you have to do. And I would anchor nights part-time on, uh, on Metro Networks in Boston. And that's how you get a tape, you know, and that's how you get aggressive and you start calling people and meeting people. And all of a sudden somebody says yes. And you pack up the U-Haul and you go. And, and uh, I was really hoping to go to Washington at some point, And that's the way it ended up and that, gosh, I spent almost 15 years there and it ended up being pretty great.
Wow. Now, as I, as I told you uh, before off the air, I read a book by Roger Mudd, one of the great newsmen who just passed away recently at the age of 93. Yeah. But he wrote a book and said, Washington is the place to be. So to come to Boston must have been a great inducement for you. Was it, was it tough to leave Washington? At the time it wasn't because, you know, my family is here and I had been, uh, I had really been through the rigors of, you know, we had started a, a, ch a channel at that point was about four years old called POTUS. It's still on the air at, at uh, Sirius XM. And I had done, a, I had been really lucky to do a lot of stuff. I had really checked a lot of boxes and I felt like, gosh, this opportunity from Boston is here. And I had a four-year-old uh, child at the time and the the prospect of having my family close to my parents and all the stuff and having that great old job at WBZ, which is something I was just so deeply curious about, was something I always wanted to do to work at an old CBS or in that case Westinghouse O and O and have like a SAG after a contract and be big time, you know. And um, it was it was all of that. It was amazing. I if I hadn't come back up here, Ken, I I would have never gone to Rome for the papal conclave or. Um, I wouldn't have been here for some of the real tough stuff like the marathon bombings or some of the things that we covered in the last 10 years that were really uh, a shakeup um, and major national stories that ended up happening here. You know, who would have thought I'd move back up here and within a couple of years I'm covering a presidential visit to Boston. Um, but we, you know, we somehow end up being, it is really amazing how we somehow end up becoming the center of things uh, eventually in Boston. But, you know, maybe it's, I should, I, I don't mean to hide anything here, but I just, I just announced my departure from GBH Radio, Ken. And uh, as you know, you were one of the first people to know, and I'm actually going back to Washington now. So um, life certainly has a way of coming full circle. Now, uh, tell me about, um, the access to the White House and, and what it was like uh, in D.C. I mean, man, I, 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 I think about that. And I think about books that I've read, like Sam Donaldson uh, covering press conferences with the president and, and, and things like that. You must have been on cloud nine being able to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. If, you, if you're into history, Ken, then it's great. I think people who get really pulled into partisan politics might feel otherwise and have weird associations with these great old buildings and, and institutions in Washington. But for me, it never got old to walk down that driveway. And eventually I became a part of the pool rotation at the White House, <clears throat> which I did for a brief period of time. When we were trying to set up a pool uh, uh, operation at POTUS. And what that is, as you probably know, there's a protective pool that is a member of each medium. There's a print, a TV, a radio, a wire, a photographer, and they follow the president everywhere for every waking moment. Um, and there's a rotation at that point, I think it was nine days or something. So your number gets called every nine days and you're in the van, you're in, you have a seat in the motorcade. When the president moves, you move. That's like the deal. Wherever they go, you go. If they go out to eat, and back then it was Obama, and they love going out to eat, you'd be out and sit in a white van at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, guaranteed, the glamour of covering the White House. But, um, but you get addicted to it. And if, if you appreciate history, because here you are witnessing this stuff that 
is truly the first draft. It's, this is all going to be in history books for better or worse some, someday. And it's a beautiful place. And being in the White House, the mansion is a special place that I, um, that I, you just shouldn't ever get used to. It's, it's, it's kind of a neat thing. Um, different people come and go, but there are things there that never change. And I guess maybe that's what's cool about it. And the same can be said for Capitol Hill as well. Also, you know, what a wonderful old uh, building that is with incredible history up there. And it really broke my heart to see all that stuff on January 6th, because it's, it's really sacred uh, ground, I think. But people have different ideas about politics. I, for me, when you consider the, the institutions and the history, it's, it's really very special. Um, I got to do a lot of primetime news conferences back then. Uh, I remember being in the East Room when, uh, when the president called the Cambridge police, uh, called them out for doing something uh, stupid, uh, stupidly. I can't remember what word he used. Um, and I thought, oh man, that's going to make news at home. But you, you know, whether you're in the East Room or the Oval Office, you always kind of have to stop. If you're like a kid from New England and just kind of you like make sure you stop and give yourself a minute to appreciate it. Once you get bored with it, you maybe you should move on. <laughs> I know. I, I was in Washington a couple of times and it's, it's you know, places like the Library of Congress and uh, yeah, that's a uh, that, that I'm particularly interested in. And of course, the Lincoln Memorial and, and all those kind of things. You get there and it's like, wow, you, you can't believe that you're really there and that you're seeing it. It's, it's like being at Yankee Stadium in New York City, except it's in Washington, D.C. instead. That's true. Yeah, it's yes. And, and I guess for that reason, I always felt very much at home there. There was sort of a welcoming aspect to it. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, it's the new Roman forum. Um, <laughs> but it's like our, it's our front yard or our backyard, whatever you want to call it. That's like, that really is the people's place. It's not even a state. Um, it's there for you. And that's why people come from all over the world to live and work there. That makes it kind of interesting too, you know, not, not, everyone is from Washington and you end up meeting people from all over the world. And that, that's uh, different than a lot of cities. So if you have to carry a memory from Washington that will live with you the rest of your life, I mean, I remember being at BZ and the best memory I've got is sitting down with Raymond Burr uh, <laughs> That's great. For, an, for an hour in his hotel room. How about that? And when I did a show on, uh, I, I did a show on cable TV in Boston, and, and the guest told me, she said, I had a great time going home to my mom, my mom and dad and telling them that I got interviewed by the guy who interviewed Perry Mason. <laughs> so what, what, what strong memories do you have of your coverage at DC as a takeaway that you will keep under your pillow forever and ever? Well, I could grab at a few things, you know, if um, I, you know, when you consider the period of time I was there, late 90s to, I came back up here in 2011, um, a lot of wacky stuff happened around that period of time. So, you know, if you're talking about like seminal events that I was there for, the biggest one would be 9-11. And I'll never forget that morning for my life. Um, I was underground when the plane hit the Pentagon. I was on my way to the, I was at that time working out of the National Press Building, which is right next to the Treasury and uh, just a couple of blocks from the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue there. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, just everyone has their own memory of where they were that day. And coming out of the Metro, coming out of Metro Center and seeing the F-16s 
had had arrived. The fighter jet had that first pass that arrived, and they were at tr at rooftop level, uh, and it was deafening. And I could see and smell the smoke from the Pentagon, and I didn't know what had happened because when I got on the train, I knew that the towers had been hit. And I thought, wow, I'm living in Washington when we're under attack. And I just kept thinking, like, what country is it? You know, we're, I, and it turned out it, those were our planes. I just couldn't see them. I could only I could hear them at first. Uh, and I ended up having a long day. We all did there on the air uh, and walking home that night in the silence of uh, the district that was close to all, all cars was really something I'll never forget. Uh, and I'll never probably be able to replay that one. Um, you know, in DC. Uh, the type of Raymond Burr sort of memory though you're talking about, because I was so lucky to meet so many people, Ken, when you're around the Smithsonian and, and, and the Capitol, uh, Capitol Hill, they bring so many wacky people in that you would not associate with Washington. They just, everybody comes through town. Um, and for the White House correspondence dinners and these types of things, you just end, end up kind of meeting everybody. And for me, the real pinch me, you know, one of the just the great things I'm so excited I was able to do is was to sit down with John Glenn. And uh, and I went up to his home. He lived with his wife up in Potomac. They had a home in Potomac, Maryland. And I sat down with him for a couple of hours in his kitchen and we had a real long interview. And it was at the time I was covering the wind down of the of the uh, the shuttle program. And that in itself is a memory. Like, how could I possibly top? I saw the, I was there at Cape Canaveral for the last night launch of the space shuttle program. And so I got to do a lot of interviews uh, with, with a lot of the, the real kind of pioneers from the space program around that. This was for XM, if I didn't say that. And they were all kind of sharing their vision for what the future of the space program could be at the time. And now, of course, we got Elon Musk and everything else going on. But we didn't have a plan at that point that was really going anywhere. And so sitting down with a lot of those guys, actually, but absolutely and especially John Glenn, it was like um, it was like talking to my grandfather. I've, I've never been I felt so connected and so touched by such an historic guy like that. And he treated me like such a king. That's one that I'll have trouble topping. I, I can remember when he went into orbit. Yeah. I'm old enough because that was 1962. Yes, exactly. And Did I, you go I outside remember to watch him go over? Pardon? Did you like go outside to watch him go over? I know a lot of people tried to. No, that I didn't do, but I, because I was still in high school at the time. Got it. But, but I remember that the, the day that he went, it was like in February. Yeah. And then he did it again. He was the oldest astronaut to go into space. That I remember. Yeah. Yep. I remember that. Now, I, how about news people themselves? Who did you get a chance to rub elbows with whose names, like, I never got a chance to meet Cronkite. And I would have given my life to yeah. have done that. Who yeah, did you funny, get to I, rub elbows with? I actually got had a chance to, to uh, meet Walter Cronkite on uh, Martha's Vineyard of all, but it had nothing to do with work. I just happened to be there. Um, but, you know, being at the National Press Club and being in the briefing room of the White House, you kind of end up meeting everybody. And you mentioned Sam Donaldson, by the way. What a great character. Um, a lot of people, nothing was ever the same in the briefing room after he left. He was the guy, he was fearless. And... Uh, while Helen Thomas, and I know that she's very controversial now, held this role for a while, Sam was the one who, he was the check on power. Nobody could get away with 
without answering him. And he'd yell from the back of the room at the president. They, nobody could yell louder than Sam Donaldson. But I had a lot of great encounters with Sam, and he came on my show um, uh, on the channel at POTUS and, and was just nothing but the most kind, full of great stories and energy. The guy was always one foot off the ground. Um, Tom Brokaw came to the National Press Club once, and we had lunch with him, which was, for me, he wasn't there, you know, we didn't, I don't know that we had a Cronkite so much for my generation, but he was one of those guys who was in the living room when I was growing up. It was first, it was the Today Show, and then as the, uh, the anchor of the, of the uh, nightly, NBC Nightly News. And I really enjoyed talking with him. You know, it was like, this is, a, this is like the real thing. This is a guy I can learn a lot from. Um, and I've got some pretty great pictures of that. But, I, you know, I could tick off the list. I, I've, I've shared time on the air with Dan Rather. He actually came to work in satellite radio uh, right when I was leaving. And I, I did some stuff at the conventions with him the last time we, we did convention coverage. And anytime you're with these guys, you just think, God, you know, just imagine the stuff they've seen um, and the miles, you know, Ken? I mean, you've done a lot yep. of shows. And yep. the number of stories and just the interviews that these guys, the number of things they witnessed, um, whether you love their stylings on the air or not, you know, they're kind of <laughs> like, they're kind of like Forrest Gump each in their own way. They've seen it all. Uh, an interview that I will remember too. I'm sure you're aware of the uh, Hindenburg disaster that occurred in yeah, 1937 yeah. and, and Herb Morrison broadcast that. We had him on the air for our 50th anniversary with Jerry Williams. Wow. And, and then I had him on the air on a Saturday night for an hour. No and, kidding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we were able to do a lot of stuff, great things back then. And he, he along with somebody like a Raymond Burr. Uh, also, I interviewed Frank Blair, who used to be on the Today Show. Excellent. Uh, I, and I had a ball doing it. I really did. Yeah. Uh, I, I think interviewing is a special art, and if you if you love the person you're interviewing and they know it, they're going to give a little extra than ordinarily. Absolutely, um, and if you listen, you know you're you're halfway there. That's the problem people have starting out with interviews, and they stick to the script and and they miss a lot of opportunities because sometimes they don't go where you're planning, and that's the that's the good stuff. You know, sometimes losing control is great. Now. We mentioned Gary LaPierre. Yes. Um, whom we both have a great affinity for. Yeah. And he told me that when he first started, he was he would anchor the news in the morning and then go out on the street and do street reporting. Were you ever allowed to do that or did you just do sole anchor? Yeah, well, you know, as I wasn't chasing fire trucks and stuff, um, but what I always really liked to do, Ken, was to get out for inter field interviews. And, and just being out of the station and meeting people is getting a sense of kind of the city and the day that you're covering. Um, it, it, was, it was less of, about chase and breaking news though, because that anchor shift turned into, um, I mean, it was a real, it was a full-time job and there was a lot of production that ended up coming around it. You know, when you get off the air, you're not actually done working. Um, but the best part of that was, you know, going up to Beacon Hill, going to city hall, going into neighborhoods, with a microphone and not relying on a telephone. And that was, for me, I thought the best way I could spend my time And that. That continued at GBH in the same way. I think a lot of anchors 
end up relying on phones and now Zoom uh, to a point where they kind of never get to meet anybody. And that's, that's and it, this, it, everything just kind of sounds different on the air when you're out in the environment. Now, um, let's talk about BZ and HDH. When you left BZ, mm -hmm. um, did you leave because of the fact that you knew uh, a certain company was going to take over and all hell would break loose? Or were you <laughs> offered a job from WGBH? I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's, I guess it's a combination of the two. GBH's timing was amazing because my contract was ending uh, with CBS. And yeah, when I learned, and you know what this is like a little bit, when I learned that CBS was no longer going to be owning or running that place, that was part of the reason why I went to work there. Let's see, the old CBS radio, which does not exist anymore, was a great, was the last great radio company. Um, and so that had a lot to do with it. <clears throat> then at that time, and this was kind of a slow roll, Ken, if you look back at the way that rolled out it was like it was torturous it started as some reverse morris ipo and they were trying to sell everybody in the company on this idea that we were going to have an ipo and it was like we're the next google you're going to get shares you know like wait what we're a radio company that's with shrinking revenue how's that going to work then it kind of morphed into this limbo and then it became a sale to entercom and then because of all the market stuff, only, you know, once company can own so many stations in a market, then there had to be a swap and it became property of iHeart. And man, if you were playing roulette, I don't know how you could have possibly predicted the way this whole thing was going to roll out. But that is part of the deal in broadcasting. You know, you can be a buy and hold and, and hope that you can ride through all these and I've got, I've survived a lot of management changes, but sometimes you have to be nimble. And at that point seemed like the right time. And when I look back at what's left and what changed, I think that was probably the time. I had good friends at BZ as I'm sure you did. Rod, <clears throat> Rod Fritz was, and still is a close friend of mine. Yeah. Deb Lawler had been there 35 years. And yeah. she was a friend of mine, and it's hard for me to listen to that station anymore. Um, I reminisce with a, a program director named Bob Oaks, who is not the Bob Oaks on NPR. Right, yeah. And we always talk about how we were at BZ when it was a lot different. And I remember talking with Upton Bell, the ex-general manager of the Patriots, who spent time at BZ, and he said, one of the things that made it great at the time we were all there was that everybody that was there was a star in their own right. <laughs> That's good. That's right. Now, tell me about the difference between national public radio and, and WBZ. Because when I listen to that, and it's, it's not a criticism, but a comment, it, it didn't seem like you were on the air as much as you were when you were at BZ Radio. Yeah, well, that's the way the, I mean, it's because I, I was doing morning edition and the format is, it's a network show. So now suddenly I'm, I'm doing local inserts in a network program. And while the, even though the newscast lengths were actually the same, there's just a lot more on and off on BZ and you're introing the business guy and the traffic and weather and, 
And there's a handoff with a co-anchor that I had, who you just mentioned, Deb Lawler, who was my co-anchor those six years at BZ. And, you know, you kind of split the hour between the two. But the way things are proportioned and sort of sliced up on Morning Edition and with the number of people, if you listen to how many names there are <laughs> on that network show, I mean, get back to me. It's like, you know, I, if they were all on stage, it would look like... Uh, looked like a rock band by the time they were done, but or an orchestra more like, so when you add another local name, it, it, you do have a little bit of a needle in the haystack effect. And that is part of, that's part of working for a local affiliate. Um, the afternoon program is a little bit like that too. All things considered, it's just kind of the way they, they do things, but they, they rely heavily on the network. Did you like it? Um, I, there were certain things that I loved about it that because I, I never could have done them anywhere else, and doing music features and doing uh, doing some of the stories that we got to sink our teeth into, and then I, doing something that was called early edition that I I began shortly after I started that was a not anything like NPR format where they really let us kind of run and they let me do whatever I wanted every morning, and it, it was it was about fifteen minutes long, even though it was scheduled to be a lot shorter than that. And we would do it on Facebook Live and we would talk to our listeners. And it was a real cool kind of wake up show, wake up news show with personality and um, had an enormous following, especially during COVID, where we would have some mornings 15 to 30,000 people with us on Facebook. And they'd be commenting live and from all over the world. And it was because, you know, we realized everyone in the globally was locked in their house at the same time. So any sort of light in the night like that was attracting an enormous amount of attention and it became kind of a support group for us. And I, you know, so there were things like that, that I allowed, that I was allowed to do at GBH that I could not have done anywhere else. And that was really fun. Um, there's also a lot of hard work there and, and a lot of hard uh, work in terms of the journalism that is involved because, you know, you're dealing with, there are a couple of different animals here. You've got a lot of really talented feature reporters who work in, in newsrooms at, at public radio stations who are not kind of always from the radio world that we are, where you're, you know, my job is to do a morning show as well. That includes a lot of things, personality, live continuity, traffic and weather, sports, things that are happening locally that make people feel like they are in a certain place. You have to find a way to do all of that around the, the extended feature reporting, which is award-winning and the reason why people listen. And, uh, and that can be a tough nut to crack. That's the hardest part of the job, I think, working as a, as a host, at least, or an anchor in, in public radio. Ex-President Donald Trump yeah. did and said a lot of things, and a lot of things happened. Uh, the attack on the Capitol happened. I still can't believe that he did not concede the fact that he lost the election. And I keep thinking in my own mind that if he had, we wouldn't have lost a police officer and five or six other people wouldn't have been killed. Yeah. As someone who has been in Washington, did you kind of wish that you were there covering that? Or did you sit back and say, man, I'm glad I'm not there at this time? I have to say, I, it was the latter, Ken. Um, I remember thinking, thank God I'm not there. I, it was just, 
I was really emotional. I found myself emotional. Like I, I think a lot of people did watching that. And it was a place that I had such positive associations with that, especially now that I'm going back down there, I'm really glad that that's, that was not my Capitol Hill that, you know, that I didn't live that. Uh, I remember a lot of other things at the Capitol, including inaugurations. I was lucky enough to go to several of them. And, you know, real wonderful kind of positive experiences there to see that thing under attack. I can't even imagine. Uh, and thank God there were reporters there. Because if we hadn't chronicled what was going on, aside from the, the morons taking their own selfies for their own arrest, um, you know, we might not have known how, what the heck was going on. And it seems like we have a, a lot of stuff to learn still. A lot of coordination and, and really scary stuff that day. Ever think Trump will be back in the spotlight again? I hope not. Well, in the spotlight, sure. But, you know, it also depends how you need that, right? I mean, if by the time, is he going to be president again? Gosh, I don't know. By another four years from now, we'll see what kind of physical and emotional shape he's in for that. But I think he's going to loom large over the midterms. I think that he may as well be you know, the chairman of the party, probably a lot more important than the chairman of the party for the midterms. Now, we kind of glossed over COVID. I'm curious, how did, if at any time, did it affect the pledges that you guys were all in the market for? Well, I guess directly in that they canceled a bunch of them. Um, I don't, God, I have to go back and look. Maybe would have been the equivalent of like two pledge uh breaks that we missed and sometimes those can go like a week long so that's significant and uh i remember you know it was like boy when is it okay to ask and that was something that every charity i think went through and probably still going through um you know when you think about the not-for-profit world and and those places that rely on contributions because despite what a lot of people realize that's the lion's share of gbh's funding it's not the federal government it's actually a, the, the federal funding uh, that, that can be. So All right. Now, hypothetical. So, yeah, when the when the listeners aren't there, that's meaningful. And, and it's GBH has deep pockets because of a lot of smart investing. They've also got the TV station. You know, it's not like a normal NPR station, but I think a lot of smaller markets had trouble uh, with that. And we've had some very strong, uh, as I understand, uh, pledge breaks since then. We did one that would have been, I guess, early spring in March or something like that that was very successful. So people are coming back. But just like any business, you know, the big downturn, sure. All right. Hypothetical question. Great. If you, if you had all the money in the world and money was no object, <laughs> A, would you set up another news station in Boston? And B... Would you move your main anchors like Nora O'Donnell has done with CBS to Washington, D.C.? Another boy, gosh, I don't, if I had all the money in the world, I feel like I'd be on an island somewhere, Ken. Like, feed <laughs> let somebody else run the station. But. <laughs> well, if you could, if you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. In the news business, mm -hmm. again, would you set up another news station? Is Boston big enough to have one more news station? And B, 
would you move people like David Muir and um, uh, I think Lester Holt uh, to Washington, D.C.? Move them there. I guess the second part of the question I don't quite gather. To do, to do their newscast instead of doing them in New York. Yeah. Oh, I see uh, what you're saying. Nora um, O'Donnell does her newscast from Washington. Yeah, Would I you? think we're going with that. I do feel like that is, you know, I guess a lot of people think of New York as the media capital, but that doesn't really matter. But those are really Washington-focused shows. And I feel like it makes a lot of sense to have them based there. Um, the New York bit, I feel like, matters less. You know, if you're going to be on Bloomberg or CNBC, it makes a lot of sense to be in New York, to be in the financial capital. But these political shows are usually casting out from somewhere other than New York, if you think about it. So it's an interesting question. As far as a news station, I don't know that the Boston market could, could support another other one. Because if you think about it, you've got the two NPR news stations, which is unheard of, with GBH and, and BUR. Then you've got WBZ on the AM dial. Then you have some of the others like Bloomberg and the and the political talkers, I guess are a little bit different, but I feel like this market needs an FM talk station, like a newsy talk station. Nobody's doing talk here that isn't partisan or sports. And I don't know that there's a market for it, but if I'm that rich, it doesn't matter because I can just <laughs> build the thing. But I love talk radio and I feel like it's it got really angry and kind of fringy and I'd like to have something local where people are, it's not just politics. You know, people are talking about the town or what, what's going on in the world this weekend, um, which a lot of music stations used to do. And now they're, you know, they're just kind of floating jukeboxes. All right. Now, whom do you like to watch or listen to at night for your news? Just out of curiosity. That's a great question. Um, I ha I'm one of these guys, and my God, I just drive my family crazy because I have like four TVs on with like all different channels on each one um, <laughs> because I'm constantly sampling. I don't actually own four TVs, but I will admit there are three. Um, I later in the day, I'm kind of beyond because of, I'm a morning driver, so I'm a little bit beyond the broadcasts at that point. For local, though, I always watch my friends at, you know, at BZ. I tend to have David Wade on uh, with Lisa in the evening to see what's happening locally. I, I am a financial news junkie from my time at CBS Market Watch and Dow Jones and covering Wall Street and all that. So I always check to see how the market's closed. And I'll put Bloomberg and CNBC on for those. They have a couple of great shows on both of those channels, actually, that I'll check out. Um, but as far as the cable news stuff, that's what I'm doing less of now. The CNNs, MSNBCs, Fox News is because um, they really turn into kind of angry gab fest. If, if it's something that's live and important to watch, if I was going to say, okay, Joe Biden's making a speech on infrastructure today, I'd, I'd rather go to C-SPAN. Um, and I... I'm kind of a wonk that way anyway. Like I actually am curious to see the room before the event starts and all that. So I like the unedited stuff. I like the raw feeds. And I, I still say Twitter is, is the most important newswire out there still that I am using at the moment. That's probably the first and last thing I see every day. But like a David Muir or a Nora O'Donnell or Lester Holt, yep. do, you watch, do you watch the network news at night? 
I don't really anymore. I sometimes if there's a story, if there's an interview specifically that they'll get, if they have a cabinet official, if there's the secretary of defense, maybe somebody wrote a book, it's only there, I'll watch that. But I tend not to watch the network news shows uh, really any longer. I'd rather watch local news because I've been doing local news and see what happened in Boston that day and then pop over somewhere else. The one show that I won't do without that's a network, an old line network news show is 60 Minutes because it's still the best. Ah, ah boy, yeah. Um, started in 1968 and it's yep. still going strong. And still more popular than anything. And, you know, they, they play it on BZ and they play it on a lot of radio stations, a lot of CB, old CBS stations, and it plays almost as well, maybe better on the radio than it does on television. You were asking about some of these uh, these old guys, uh, or not so old in this case. I did an event at BZ with Scott Pelly. Ah. And he came to town for it, actually. I guess that was really why he came. Uh, it was a WBZ business breakfast, as we called it. And they would, you know, they'd, they'd rent out the the ballroom at the Sheridan and it was a big sales event. Usually, you know, they'd invite listeners, but it was for the clients and uh, they had a stage up there and I've got an hour with Scott Pelley. So right. How cool is that? And he was fascinating to listen to really interesting guy, super serious, you know, journalist um, takes his work very seriously. And they were, he was relatively new in the chair uh, at that point for the, the uh, evening news but he talked a lot about 60 Minutes because that's where he was from. And he was very proud of the fact that they never used any graphics to identify people or places. So if there was a, if you heard a voice on 60 Minutes, you didn't see, you know, it didn't say Joe Matthew under that person because they said it in the script. So if you played it on the radio, you would miss truly nothing. It was truly written for the ear, even though it was a TV show. And that's something that's very rare. And having worked in the newsroom at BZ Ken, you know how difficult it is to write for the ear. And to do that yep. in, in that form, on that level, on television is, is I think, unheard of. You know, I, I asked Gene Hartigan about, about news coverage. And he said the thing that drives him crazy is that all the time you hear the phrase, breaking news. Yes, and it may be something like a car crash somewhere, or um, you know, somebody resigning or something like that. Right. And I sit back and say, "This is breaking news," and it, it drives me crazy a little bit too. Or it's something that happened yesterday. <laughs> That's the yeah. part that I laugh at because you know, on the cable news channels, they'll just put breaking news up there for any reason. Uh, which really kind of waters down the whole thing. And then there's a countdown clock for, you know, for two days when, when the state of the union or something is coming, which is really not breaking either uh, or dramatic in its approach, but uh, God knows they try. I, I will watch, we watch David Muir in this house. Yep. And the first 15 minutes of the show is great because they concentrate on a lot of news stories. But after that, they'll give you a story that may take 10 seconds to read and go to a commercial. Yes. Then they'll come back and do the same thing over yep. and over again. Yep. That drives me nuts too. Yeah, and you know how this stuff goes. I'm sure it's all been tested and it's by design, right? To keep audiences for certain periods of time and 
Boy, yep. they really, you know, these have become scientific endeavors, the way these, uh, these half hours are cut up. It's so visual now, though. There is a lot more, and I see it more on ABC. If you look at the way GMA looks in the morning, I mean, my God, it's just the primary colors. It's like a, it's like a psychedelic album cover, almost. <laughs> and then, and it's very visual. You know, it's a lot of video highlights and, and highlight reels and stuff. And even in the evening with Muir, you know, it's a lot of, you know, get a load of this video today. And it's someone being rescued out of a ravine. It's somebody jumping out of an airplane. It's a natural disaster. There's not necessarily a story there. It's just really interesting video. And it's kind of that TikToks type of thing that the internet has done to TV news. Because uh, that's what rates. That's what, that's must be what gets the ratings. Yep, I remember the slogan, some stations use something like, if it bleeds, it leads. Yes, right. There's got to be some new equivalent, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, you are leaving Boston again. Yes. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Tell like, me about that really and where we can listen to you. Well, I'll be starting. Uh, it's actually, it hasn't even been announced officially, um, but I will be uh, working in Washington, covering the White House again and doing a, an afternoon talk show uh, for, uh, for a major network. Are we live right now, Ken, or does this get posted in a couple of days? No, this, is, this will air on Saturday evening, so we are not live at the moment. Yes, yeah, so I think it's out by then. But uh, it's with a major financial uh, and data network that you probably know called Bloomberg. And, ah, yes. Uh, they, you know, that's a, it's it's a massive company, and it's it's a job that I'm excited about. That'll be a kind of a whole new start. Um, so after you know, I've been back here almost exactly ten years, almost ten years to the day. Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be our loss that you're gone from here. Well, I. Have enjoyed your work uh, at BZ and, of course, at, at WGBH. I only wish you were doing this in person because I've always wanted to meet you. And I don't think I'm going to get that chance. <laughs> well, you never know. Life's kind of funny that way. And this is where my family is. And I, I, you know, I've promised everyone that I'm going to be up here a lot. So I do plan for that to be the case. And uh, I don't know. So give me a ring. Let's book this thing. Once you're back in person, maybe like in the next year, we can actually do it. I'll have some fun stories for you, I bet. <laughs> I'll bet. Listen, it's, it's been an honor to have you on the air. And, and being a member of the media makes me glad that I can talk to people like you who contribute so much uh, and are so dedicated. And I really appreciate your taking time. Well, that means a lot to me. You know, you're kind of my exit interview here. <laughs> but uh, is, you know, was a really important chapter in my life. And you and I know so many of these great people I've had a chance to work with in common. So it's entirely appropriate. I couldn't think of uh, a better way to kind of wrap this, this, uh, this chapter up, Ken. So thank you for having me on. Oh, you know, listen, it's my pleasure. Again, I appreciate your taking time to do this and and thank you for what you have done as far as the media here in boston it ain't going to be the same <laughs> i'll tell well, you it, that means a lot and uh, thank you again i'll see you on the radio again from a from a different place real soon i certainly hope so and that will do it for this edition of city talk good night everybody thanks for listening to another great conversation with ken meyer and friends 
you can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.